And this afternoon we want to turn to Psalm 106. Psalm 106, we'll read verses 1 through 15. It's quite a lengthy psalm, but we'll read the first 15 verses. Praise the Lord, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all his praise? Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them, that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry, and he led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe, and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries, not one of them was left. Then they believed his words, they sang his praise, but they soon forgot his works, they did not wait for his counsel. But they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. He gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease among them. We have here in the Psalm 106 a psalm of praise to the Lord, and it's a psalm specifically in respect of God's patience, God's long suffering toward his people. Closely related to Psalm 105, this is one of several psalms of which we have no idea as to who wrote it, nor the occasion in respect of which it was written, whereas Psalm 105 reflects on the Lord's gracious and powerful acts on behalf of his people. Psalm 106 presents a sad picture, a very sad picture of his people forgetting his mighty, wondrous work. So we have here in these psalms, Psalm 105 and Psalm 106, what we might call a study in contrast, a study in contrast between the faithfulness of God on the one hand and the waywardness of his people on the other hand. Based on verse 47, in which the psalm is praised, here's his prayer in Psalm 1-9-106-47, verse 47, he says, Save us, O Lord our God, gather us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Based on that prayer, there are those who suggest that this psalm was written after the Babylonian captivity. The psalmist is praying that God would deliver them from the nations, and based on the similarity, however, between David's song in First Chronicles 16, verses 34 through 36, and the last two verses of this Psalm 106, the majority view is that David was the author of this psalm. So David might have been speaking prophetically here 
concerning return from the captivity. As we said, the thrust of this psalm is God's relentless and unfailing love for faithless Israel. Despite their rebellion against him, God remains faithful. And if there's one portion of scripture that vividly illustrates for us the persevering grace of God toward his people in the face of their repeated sins, their repeated rebellion against him, it is this Psalm 106. It's a psalm well worth studying. It's a psalm well worth noting. Uh, We're talking about this afternoon, the faithfulness of God as against the rebellion of his people. We have in the first five verses an introductory reflection by the psalmist. He begins with praise to the Lord, verses 1 and 2. And in verse 1, he praises the Lord for his goodness. Praise the Lord, O give thanks, for he is good. This is a recurring theme we find in the Psalms. It's one we can easily overlook. We have covered this theme in the Psalms already. Previous Psalms, you have looked at the goodness of God. And it is a theme we can never really exhaust. It's a theme we can never be really tired of reflecting on. By his very nature, by his very character, God is good. There's a saying which goes, God is good all the time, all the time, God is good. It's not just a cliche, it is a fact. God cannot but always be good. Scripture, in fact, makes this point when it declares in Psalm 119 and verse 68, you are good and do good. And that God is good explains why he is forgiving according to Psalm 86 and verse 5. Psalm 145 verses 7 and 8 speaks of the fame of his abundant goodness which relates to his being gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and being good and merciful to all. As such, the goodness of God we learn from Exodus chapter 34, rather 33, verses 18 and 19. The goodness of God is a function of his glory and his grace. Let's show what we mean by this statement. Moses, you remember, requested of God that God would show him his glory. God, of course, took step to hide Moses in the cleft of the rock because here, in fact, we read in Exodus 33, 8 and 9, when Moses said, please show me your glory, God responded, he says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So there we see God associates his goodness with his glory. The goodness of God, we would say then, is a function of his glory. God displays his glory. One of the ways in which God displays his glory is by his sheer goodness toward his creatures. In fact, he he puts his glory on display here in Psalm 106 as he deals with his faithless, rebellious people. Here in verse 1b of our text, our text relates the goodness of God to his enduring covenant love. We read, for his steadfast love endures forever. And related to this Hebrew word, the word there for steadfast love, chesed, that's used here, It carries the idea, it can also relate to the idea of mercy, love, 
kindness that's grounded in God's covenant relationship with his redeemed people. Because of his covenant loyalty to his people, his mercy toward them is, the psalmist is suggesting, perpetual. His mercy toward them far surpasses their sins. In continuing to praise the Lord, the psalmist rhetorically inquires, he says, Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare it? Who can declare that is literally caused to be heard all his praise? Now, if we think about that statement, what the psalmist is suggesting here is that in and of ourselves, you and I, do not, we do not possess the natural capacity, the natural ability to worship God, to praise God in a manner that truly befits him. The question suggests that on account of our sins, on account of our frailties, we are at a loss as to how to sufficiently and suitably praise God considering who God is. As well because of his surpassing unspeakable greatness and what Psalm 40 and verse 5 describes as the multiplication of his wondrous deeds and thoughts, we do not have tongue enough, words enough to fully praise him. In fact, truth is our best worship is at best just that, our best. But our, our best worship, in a very real sense, does not befit who God is. We cannot, by our own account, by our own ability, by our own wisdom and strength, worship this great God the way he truly deserves. No wonder it is we learn from 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 5 that we worship God, we offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And what a wonderful thing it is that here we worship God with all our infirmities, with all our frailties, with all our imperfection and the assurance we have at the end of the day that we are truly worshiping God, that God is satisfied with us. It is not because of anything about us in terms of our earnestness or sincerity. Those things are important. Yes, but here's the point. Even when we are earnest, even when we are passionate, even when we are most sincere in our worship, at the end of the day, all that we give is not good enough. That is where our Lord Jesus steps in as our high priest. Now, with verse 3, the psalmist shifts from praise to reflection. He speaks in verse 3 of the privilege, of the blessedness of those who are ever committed to doing what is right. He says there in verse 3, blessed are those who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. And what is the significance of this assertion by the psalmist? Well, read in the light of the history of Israel's waywardness as recorded in verses 7 through 46, the consequent chastisement they received from the Lord, what the psalmist seems to be hinting at here is the depravity of the human condition which necessitates the redeeming mercy of God. The psalmist here is suggesting that to be at that place where the grace of God enables us to live righteously is to be at the place of great blessing and great privilege because in, truly in and of ourselves, we cannot and we do not righteousness at all times. It is a grace of God at work in us, the saving, redeeming, transforming grace of God in us 
working in us, enabling us to do what the writer says, the writer of the Hebrews says, that which is well-pleasing in his sight. And with that said, the psalmist then prays in verses 4 and 5, Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them, that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. And in that prayer is the suggestion of that his recognizing the fact that he's not where he ought to be, where he should be in his relationship with the Lord, in his walk with the Lord. In fact, this is suggested in his confession in the following verse, verse 6, both we and our fathers have sinned, we have committed iniquity, and have done wickedness. Now, he moves now to think on, to reflect on Israel's rebellion. He begins in verse 6. Here is his posture before God, a posture of humility, a posture of penitence. He says, both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Just like Daniel, as we saw last week, and just as some Solomon does in 1 Kings 8, verse 47, just as Nehemiah does in Nehemiah 9, verses 16, 32 to 34. The psalmist we note here identifies himself and his generation with the sins of his forefathers. And he's quite humble before God. He includes himself. He says, both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity, we have done wickedness. And for us to really appreciate what the psalmist is saying here, for us to really appreciate his humble posture before God, we have to understand the nuances, the shades of meaning behind the various words he uses in connection with his offenses against God and his generation's offenses against God. He says, first of all, we have sinned. The word here, hata, means to miss a goal to go wrong. He's saying here, God, we have missed your standard. We have missed that standard you have outlined in your word as to how we should live. We have deviated from it. We have missed the mark entirely. We have sinned. Reminds us of what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, when he says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All humanity without exception have fallen short of glorifying God on account of sin. He says not only have we missed the mark, but we have committed iniquity, iniquity. And that word, abon, which translates our English word iniquity, means to act in a way that is contrary to a standard, to act contrary to a standard. I pointed out last week, last time we are doing Daniel, it carries the idea of twistedness, crookedness, moral crooked, crookedness, moral and spiritual deformity. It carries the idea of being perverse, warped, crooked, depraved. And then he says, we have done wickedness, wickedness, rasha, 
The word there speaks of crime. It speaks of violation against God's standard, God's holy and righteous standard. The equivalent idea is that of unrighteousness. Now, if you ask the question, can we as God's people bear that title, bear that designation, wicked, many would say, well, no. You know, we are saved. We are good people. That would never relate to us. And yet, the Word of God teaches that we, as the people of God, can act wickedly. We can have within us wicked ways. That was why the psalmist in Psalm 139 prayed, he asked God, search me, O God, and see if there be any, what, wicked way in me. See if there is any crime in me. Now, we might not be engaged in violence as properly understood. We might not be engaged in crime as popularly understood. Yet, from God's perspective, where sin is concerned, whenever we sin against God, whenever we offend God, we are actually committing a crime, a violation against God. We, as the people of God, can have wickedness. 2 Chronicles 7 verse 14 underscores that very idea. My people who are called by my name shall, what, humble themselves, turn from their wicked ways. I will hear from heaven. I'll forgive their sins and heal their land. Now, sin, iniquity, and wickedness are not simply what we do out of weakness. The suggestion then, based on these terms that the psalmist uses, for the psalmist uses for offenses against God, we see here that sin, iniquity, wickedness are not simply what we do out of weakness, but what we do by willful, deliberate choice. Yes, there are sins of weaknesses, but there are also sins of choice. We never know the seriousness of our sins until we understand something of the nature of sin, of what sin is in the eyes of of a holy and righteous God. The psalmist could pray this way. Why? Because he had a clear understanding of the holiness, of the righteousness of God. And knowing the true nature of sin, we come to understand, as the psalmist did, that except for the saving, redeeming mercy and grace of God, we're no better than our fellow men. We're no better than others. In verse 7, we see the expressions of sin, iniquity, and wickedness in the way of ancient Israel, by extension of you and me, when we are walking contrary to the Lord. We see sin, first of all, we see sin, iniquity, and wickedness as being rooted in the mind. From where does sin originate? Sin originates... Whenever we sin, it's coming from the heart. Bear in mind that in Scripture, heart and mind, one and the same. Sin has its root in the mind. Our sins quite often are related to spiritual deficiencies in the realm of the mind. Note what the psalmist says in verse 7. Here's what he says. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea 
at the Red Sea. Here we learn that very much related to our sinful ways is failure to consider the works of God. Sin has its root in the mind. Sin essentially is what? Forgetfulness of God, of who God is, and of what God has done. That is why concerning the wicked, the psalmist can say in Psalm 28 verses 3 to 5 that they do not regard the works of the Lord nor the work of his hand. Isaiah chapter 5 verses 11, woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wines inflame them. They have lyre and harp and tambourine, flute and wines at their feast, but they do not regard, they do not consider the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his, his hands. Sin against God, revolt against God, iniquity against God has its root in the mind. Job 34, 26, 27, he strikes them for their wickedness in a place for all to see because they turned aside from following him and had no regard for any of his ways. In other words, they were mindless toward him. Paul brings out very much the same idea in Romans chapter 1, verses 28, 21, 28, that men's sins, men's wickedness relate to their failing to consider God and his works. Their sins are rooted in their mind. For although, Romans chapter 1, 21, they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts, again, mind and heart, one and the same, their foolish hearts, their foolish minds, were darkened, and since they did not see it fit to acknowledge God, mental activity once again, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Paul will talk about the mind that is hostile toward God. The psalmist notes that not only did his forefathers not consider the wondrous works of God, but that they did not remember the abundance of his steadfast love. You see, one is related to the other. They did not remember the abundance of God's goodness toward them, all because they weren't considering in the first place. They had no thought, no mind for the things of God. Their problem was that their minds were preoccupied with fleshly, self-seeking concerns, on account of which they had a loss of memory, a memory loss with respect to God's goodness. You see, whenever our minds are engaged with something else other than the concerns, the interests of God, our minds actually are being hostile toward God. And what was the ultimate background, what was the ultimate outworking of their failure to keep God in view, to keep God in mind, to consider the wondrous works of God, the abundance of his steadfast love toward them? Look at what the psalmist says, verse 7, rebellion against God, rebellion against God. Note the last line of verse 7, they rebelled at the Red Sea. Now on the face of it, you know, on the surface, we could say they rebelled, they, 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 they were dissatisfied, they were disgruntled at the, by the Red Sea, they complained and murmured at the Red Sea because they saw that they were hemmed in by the sea before them, they were hemmed in by the sea 
with, with the approaching armies of Pharaoh behind them. But really, what the psalmist is saying here, that was not their real problem. The issue behind their murmuring was neither the Red Sea nor Pharaoh with his pursuing chariots, but their heart attitude of rebellion against God. Their hearts were not right with God, which again was related to their failure to reckon on the Lord's past goodness, to reckon on God's past faithfulness, because if they were thinking of what God did for them, delivering them from Egypt, then they would have reckoned on the fact that having brought them to this point, God was not going to allow them to be destroyed. So they rebelled against God. They rebelled through their murmuring. But why did they murmur? They failed to consider. They failed to remember who God was and what God had done for them. But look at the Lord's response. We're talking this afternoon about a contrast between the faithfulness of God, the forgiving faithfulness of God on the one hand, and the rebellion and unfaithfulness of his people on the other hand. The Lord's response, notice, God in grace overcame the rebellion of his people. The Bible says there, the Lord saved them with a miraculous deliverance. How did he do that? Or rather, why did he do that? Why did God save them? Why did God not consume them at that point? Why did God not just wipe them out at that point? Yes, we know it's his nature to be patient. His nature to be long-suffering. He's not willing that any should perish. Yes, we could say because of all of that, why he did not destroy them. But if you'll notice in verse 8, the specific reason as to why the Lord delivered them at the Red Sea, despite their waywardness, despite their rebellion against him, we read, yet he saved them for his name's sake. He saved them for his name's sake. He saved them that he might make known his mighty power. My friends, Here we see that above all else, God's first and foremost interest, God's first and foremost concern, if we might put it that way, has to do with his own honor and glory. The honor and glory of his name. Bear that in relation to our salvation. Relate that to the the matter of our salvation. Can we say that the reason God saved us was for the glory of his name. Yes, it is true. The Bible says he saved us because he loved us. He was not willing that we should perish. He sent his son to die for us. But when you read elsewhere in scripture, we see, for example, in Ephesians 1, he saved us. He called us according to what? His own purpose and grace to the, glo- to the glory and praise of his grace. And this is only right because he is the supreme Lord over all. His name, above all else, is to be magnified. As he himself declared in Malachi chapter 1, verse 14, For I am a great king, and my name will be feared among the nations. So the reason God spared them, God said, Listen, I'm doing it for the sake of my own name. Not going to destroy you, but for my glory. I'm going to be gracious to you for my own namesake. 
And then notice what he says. Second reason, and it's related to the first, as to why he saved them from the Red Sea despite their rebellion, he says that he might make his mighty power to be known. In other words, his purpose in delivering Israel from destruction, in delivering them despite their rebellion, was to show forth his glory, his honor, his power, not only to Israel, but to Pharaoh and surrounding nations. God's name is honored and glorified. God's glory is established when he forgives. And what an overwhelming display of glory and power the Lord manifested. The parting of the Red Sea, we could say, was the signal demonstration of his redemptive power on behalf of Israel. We read in verses 9 through 11, he rebuked the Red Sea, it became dry, he led them through the deep as through a desert. See how gracious he was. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Did they deserve that? Absolutely not. But he says he did it for his own name's sake, for his own glory, that his power might be known. You know, God, when part of the reason God saved us, if you go to, for example, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says there that one of the reasons God saved us and among the purposes of his saving grace toward us, he says that in the ages to come, he might show what? The exceeding riches of his grace and kindness toward us. In fact, he says that to the principalities and powers might be made known the manifold wisdom of God. What was Israel's response to the Lord's deliverance? Verse 12, then they believed his words and they sang his praise. Isn't that wonderful? And we would say, sure it is, because that should be the response to the Lord's gracious dealings toward us. But, and of course, this was quite an appropriate response. But notice as we see in verse 13, their praise was momentary. It was largely emotional. They believed his words. They sang his praise. Yes, but how soon they became forgetful of God and his power. Do we see ourselves there in Israel's attitude to the Lord? Yes, God delivered them. They were in deep distress. They believed God. They sang his praise. But notice verse 13. They soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. Let's not be mistaken, beloved, that this kind of response was not limited to ancient Israel. As I said, this is where our own hearts we can find. We can be forgetful of God's grace. We can be forgetful of all that God has done for us in mercy and grace, all the blessings he has poured upon us. In one instance, we are all excited, praising God. In another instance, we go back to our old ways. How soon do we also become forgetful? Now notice how that the failure to remember God, how God worked in our lives, failure to always keep God in view, his power leads to impatience. Verse 13, they waited not for his counsel. 
Everything is related, right? They did not remember God. They forgot God. They forgot all his wondrous works. They rebelled against him. And notice another outworking of their forgetfulness, their unmindfulness of God, was their impatience. Verse 13b, they waited not for his counsel. And failure to wait on the Lord, failure to wait on the Lord through impatience is tied, we notice here, to sinful self-seeking gratification. Verse 14, note how that their impatience, these Israelites, the Bible tells us, lusted, that is they craved, their cravings led them to make presumptuous demands of God. But they had, verse 14, a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. He gave them what they asked but sent a wasting disease among them. Whenever you and I, my friends, we are overtaken by lust of any kind, whenever there, uh, there, there is in our life any kind of overweening desire for that which is forbidden, that many times is symptomatic of our relationship with God. We see that here in this particular context. We see in verse 15, the frustrating, unsatisfying nature of sinful loss, of craving for that which is outside the will of God. Notice what happened when they craved, when they yearned, when they demanded that God supply them with that which was forbidden. God gave them. But in the end, it was not satisfying. Rather than being a blessing, it only turned out to be a curse. We read there in verse 15, he gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease among them. How true it is that the pleasures of sin are only for a season. Lusts, sinful pleasures, sinful desires promise a great deal. And sometimes God has a way of giving us the things that we persistently ask him for, things we know that are not in line with his will. But what happens in the end? We end up famished in soul. We come to realize the utter futility of that which is outside the will of God for us. How true the pleasures of sin are only for a season. That if we are ever to be truly satisfied, then our satisfaction, our fulfillment, must be found in the Lord himself. Remember that famous saying of Augustine, he says this, O God, you made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. There is nothing that can satisfy us more than the living God himself. And what we learn from this psalm is that there's a progression to sin, right? There's a progression to sin. Sin is rooted in the mind. When we get our minds off God, we become forgetful of his works. That breeds anxiety. It breeds impatience. It breeds rebellion against God. It breeds impatience to the point where we desire things that are contrary to the will of God. We have to watch that in our lives. We're reminded this afternoon that the God of grace stands ready to forgive, to fill us with his forgiving grace. And of course, that is 
something to rejoice about. May God bless these words to our hearts for his name's sake. May we set our minds on him and on things above, not on things on the earth.